0: Part three The Psychology of Religion by Edwin Dillard Starbuck. This Liverbox recording is in the public domain. Part three Comparison of the Lines of Growth With and Without Conversion. Chapter 28. The Line of Growth Following Conversion. We finally require to bring together the most salient facts and principles adduced in the foregoing chapters and see them in their relationships. Before doing this, we shall turn to a brief survey of the latter development of those persons who have experienced conversion. The conclusions already reached will be either verified or limited as laws of growth of universal application by what we find true in regard to this other class of persons. When we have ascertained the likenesses and differences between these two types of religious growth, we shall be able to turn with somewhat fuller knowledge to a concise statement of the line of development from childhood toward maturity. In taking up the study of those lines of growth which persons pass through after conversion, we shall hope not only to arrive at a more complete comprehension of the trends of religious development, but shall, at the same time, have a means of determining more adequately than was possible in the analysis of the crisis itself, the nature of conversion. We shall apply to it this test. What is the effect of conversion on after development? What new factors are turned loose in consciousness which vary the line of growth from that through which persons seem to pass whose development has been more gradual? For example, are these persons freed from the storm and stress, struggle, anxiety, and doubt that so frequently attend the progress of those whom we have just been studying? Toward the end of the individual development, do they come out with the same general attitude toward life and with a similar appreciation of spiritual things? In the comparison of the two groups, there are some conclusions that we can safely leave behind us as fairly well established. We have found that conversion, viewed simply from the standpoint of its immediate significance, was in no sense a unique phenomenon, but that, in its most essential aspect, it was a sudden outburst of religious life and awakening to spiritual insight. It has its correspondence and gradual growth. The character of the experiences in the one group and in the other shade off into each other by imperceptible gradations, and correspond in the time at which they occur. The sense of sin and that of imperfection we have found to attach themselves to no theological doctrine but to be the natural outgrowth of the developmental processes which are going on during adolescence. The result which seemed to be attained in conversion and that which was working itself out during adolescence among those persons who have not experienced conversion are at bottom essentially the same, namely the birth of human consciousness on a higher spiritual level this is attended by the awakening of a fuller and keener self-consciousness, and at the same time by the birth of a social instinct, which leads the person to reach out and feel his life one with that of the larger social, institutional, and spiritual worlds. With these likenesses in view, the question narrows itself down mainly to this. To what extent is the result which seems to be reflected in conversion fully reached? Is it simply the opening up of an ideal that has to be actualized, a vivid foretaste of a life that may become one's own, or does the person actually attain the new life at the instant of conversion and immediately begin living on an indefinitely higher plane of existence? Unfortunately, the persons whose experiences we studied in Part I were not asked for their post-conversion development. However, Miss Fanny E. Johnston, a student in my seminary, has brought together 100 autobiographies of persons who have experienced conversion and has made, under my direction, a special investigation of the line of post-conversion growth. These records were written in response to a special list of questions which call out into considerable detail the experiences at conversion, those immediately following and the development since conversion. The cases used are in most respects comparable to those used in the study of conversion itself in Part One. They are usually persons reared in favorable religious surroundings, and are well distributed as to vocation and condition in life. Just as in the groups we have already studied, there are rather too many college-bred people among the number for them to be entirely representative. There is a single marked difference, that of the cases we are now studying. Somewhat more than one-half belong to the Methodist denomination. As for the remainder, there is a good sprinkling of nearly all the other Protestant sects. The nature of the conversion phenomenon itself in these cases does not differ in any respect which demands special consideration from those which furnish the basis of the study of conversion in Part I. The persons usually experienced at conversion the same sense of joy, peace, and contentment as did those we have studied heretofore. After conversion they almost invariably set out with new and high resolves. Their attitude towards life had been transformed. In the presence of the new life old habits had apparently passed away. New interests and enthusiasms had been awakened. Motives and purposes had been purified. Higher ideals aroused. Frequently the personality seemed entirely changed. But when we follow up the events which mark the trend of life after conversion, the crucial question we have just raised is almost directly answered. For we find that nearly all the persons are sooner or later beset with the same difficulties that ordinarily attend adolescent development. Indeed the percentage of those difficulties in this group of persons is slightly greater than in the case of those whose growth was not attended by conversion. While in this latter group there were 80% of the women and 89% of the men who had storm and stress or doubt. In the cases we are now studying there are 93% of the women and 77% of the men who had similar experiences. The immediate conclusion which might be drawn from these statistics is that conversion fails of its purpose and has no marked effect on after development. Before we settle on an interpretation, however, of its significance, we must look more minutely at the nature of experiences which follow conversion, as compared with those which occur under other conditions. We must likewise take into consideration that we are dealing with a class of persons who are temperamentally different. We have found that they are more susceptible to external influences, and more impressionable by suggestion. Consequently, we have to keep constantly before our minds the question as to how these persons would have developed in the absence of conversion. Presumably, they would naturally have shown greater irregularities than those who were less open to impressions. If we proceed to consider the nature of the struggles which follow conversion, we find at the same time many similarities and many differences between these and the usual adolescent difficulties. In Table 31, are shown some of the types of the post conversion struggles together with the percentages of their frequency in each of the sexes in the first place we should notice that complete relapses are few whereas periods of inactivity and indifference are numerous in fact with women these latter are the rule those experiences classed in the table as relapses correspond fairly to complete alienation in the cases studied in part two whom we shall for convenience call the non-conversion group. They represent the tendency for persons to feel themselves aloof from the religious interests of other people. If we recall the fact that more than a third of the non-conversion cases have passed through more or less definite period of alienation, and note that only 6% of the conversion group have completely relapsed, we have one of the most important differences between the two types. While the religious difficulties which follow conversion are rather more frequent than those which Otherwise accompany adolescent growth, the instances are far less numerous among the conversion group of complete alienation from conventional standards. In other words, the persons who have passed through conversion, having once taken a stand for the religious life, tend to feel themselves identified with it, no matter how much their religious enthusiasm declines. The periods of inactivity and indifference seem to be the outgrowth of a natural tendency of human interest to ebb and flow. Nervous energy, when directed vigorously in a certain way, completely expends itself and must then have a period of recuperation. Rhythms in the supply of available energy are coming to be a universally recognized phenomena. If, with the proper apparatus, one tries continuously to lift a weight with one finger at successive intervals of a second, one can lift it to a less and less distance, until finally it cannot be lifted at all but suddenly the ability to perform the work is almost fully regained, and it continues to come and go at intervals. The same fluctuations are true in regard to the higher mental activities. One of the stock experiments on fluctuations of the attention illustrates in a concrete way the general principle. If a watch is placed at such a distance that the ticking can just be heard with strained attention, the sound of the ticking comes and goes with rhythmical regularity. The commonly accepted explanation is that the nerve cells involved in the act of attention must have time to recuperate. When a cell is exploded, it must have time to recover. It cannot explode again until it has been recharged. That is why the attention is interrupted, Why we can attend only for a few seconds at a time. The spurts of the attention wave correspond to the successive discharges of cortical cells. In this instance, we have a specific illustration of what is true for any sort of mental activity. Spells of depression are likely to come at the close of a very busy day. With the breaking of a fever, the physician has to guard against a sudden variation to the opposite extreme. In these well-known facts, we have doubtless a parallel to the variation in religious feeling. Almost invariably, the subjects who are active in religious work have ups and downs in their degree of religious enthusiasm. One of them seems to have had, for several years, wave-like fluctuations of religious interest at pretty regular intervals of two years. Another, a woman of forty, writes, My religious experience has been a succession of waves of pulsations following each other in quite regular order. Indifference and inactivity are always followed by self-examination. At such times, disgust is stronger than regret. Then follows the effort to regain the lost ground, and, as a result, arise renewed enthusiasm, heightened activity and fresh devotion to religious work but it seems impossible to hold myself to the high tide mark in her personal attachments this person shows the same fluctuations as in her religious attitude one is doubtless to look for the explanation of such instances as the following in the rhythms in the supply of nervous energy a woman who had been converted at fourteen who had before conversion had struggles with an uncontrollable temper and at the time of conversion, wept and felt very joyous, says of her latter development. I had a period of introspection at seventeen, caused by over-enthusiasm. Religion was on my mind, so constantly that my nervous system gave way. I had a feeling of despair and longed to die. It is the rule, and to be expected, that after the great enthusiasm conversion, there should follow a decline. The duration of the enthusiasm and the period of the ebb of feeling vary greatly with different individuals. This seems to be conditioned by the nervous constitution of different persons. It has been found by experiment that scarcely two persons have the same fatigue curve. Some are exhausted quickly with slight expenditure, while others have great endurance under great exertion. So, in religious feeling, the enthusiasm aroused at conversion continues, according to individual differences, all the way from a few hours to several years. Sometimes the rise and fall in religious feeling seems to attach itself to other natural rhythms, one person reports that during f- five successive years he was awakened to religious enthusiasm during the winter, which declined in the summer. mailing Hansen has established the fact of a yearly rhythm in growth in his tests on children. he ascertained that physical growth is the greatest during the autumn months, less from December to the end of April, and that there is a minimal period from the end of April to the end of July. Almost the whole weight gained from December to April is lost during the minimal period. The rise in religious feeling during the winter may be conditioned in part by the more rapid metabolic changes going on in the organism at that time. There is an unconscious recognition of the principle in the fact that religious revivals were almost always held during the winter. The true understanding of so-called backsliding, a very common phenomena, is to be found in part in the principle of the natural fluctuations of religious feeling. In the first publication of the study of conversion, an attempt was made to classify the cases according to their degree of performance. That has been found since to be a futile effort. It is more fair to say that the instances arranged themselves in a series from the few at the one extreme in which there was complete relapse to those at the other in which there was a slight ebb of religious ardor. Although a large proportion of the respondents admit to a lack of constancy in the warmth of their enthusiasm, there are almost none, about six per cent, of these who did not maintain at the same time that their religious status was little affected. One woman who reports that through the influence of a sceptical husband her religious activity for a time completely ceased and she was thrown into a period of indifference and introspection maintains that her faith never waned. A man of thirty-five who, after his conversion at nineteen, had passed through both doubt and storm and stress, says, I have never given up in the least degree my religious faith. From what has been said, it would appear that the effect of conversion is to bring with it a changed attitude toward life, which is fairly constant and permanent, although the feelings fluctuate. It is as if the new nerve connections in the association centers of the brain, with which the personality is now identified, had become somewhat permanently fixed but the flow of the nerve energy were intermittent and sometimes were not sufficient in intensity to awaken a simultaneous response in the sympathetic and vasomotor systems. In such times of low tension, the nervous discharges are sufficient to make themselves felt in consciousness, but not intense enough to overflow into the motor areas. One is accordingly not only different, but inactive in the direction of the new life. We must not make too much of the principle of fluctuations of feeling. However, as an explanation of the difficulties that follow conversion, there are other causes equally as apparent. An important one among these is the persistence of old habits, which, for their time, have lost their force and have become hidden from view in the presence of the new lines of activity. When, after a time, the newly acquired enthusiasm has partly died away, these old habits reassert themselves. From the table we observe that more than one-fourth of the women and about one-third of the men are disturbed after conversion by the persistence of old habits. This general type of experience is well illustrated in the following case of a man converted at 20. His awakening was sudden and spontaneous after several years of conflict with evils and imperfections and aspiration toward a higher life. In describing the feelings, immediately following conversion, he says, I had a liberty, a freedom, a joy that I had not before. My general health at once improved. I at once began to study the best books, to seek for the best things, planned to be something for God. I read the Bible with more delight. I wanted others to know that I was a Christian. I worked hard, played hard, did everything with enthusiasm and reason for the glory of my Master. I thought all sin was killed. I thought I could be tempted with anything and yet not feel the temptation. I thought sin would never live again in me. I loathed impurity. My desires and aspirations were for the purest of the pure. Writing of his present experience, some ten years later, he says, But I have found since, and find now, that sin is very much alive, and I have a constant struggle to keep it down. Laziness, sluggishness, low groveling desires, the old impure images and fancies, the remembrance of the past still haunts me. I have never doubted that a change then took place in my life, although I have doubted the explanation of it. The condition underlying the necessity of having to fight the old battles over again is clear. The habits of early life, which have cut out deep channels in the nervous system, and have left their impression there, are still easy outlets for the discharge of nervous force, provided it is not drafted off along new channels. The moment the enthusiasm declines and the tension which holds life steady and firm in the newly acquired channels is relaxed, one falls back into the old modes of activity, this aspect of the adolescent conflict represents the incongruity between the old nerve tracts which correspond to the habits that have at one time been forsaken and the new lines of nervous activity which have not yet become thoroughly established. As we shall see, the tendency is for the effort to continue until the new set of neural habits that correspond to the conduct of life on a spiritual plane have become so deeply ingrained that life expresses itself naturally and easily through them. When this is accomplished the old habits have lost their force if this physiological point of view is a true one it should bring to our mind with the greatest emphasis some points of practical importance in regard to the post-conversion period the nerve tracts involved in the old life are perhaps structurally as much a part of the person's makeup just after conversion as are his arms or legs they may cease to exist as functioning organs in either of two ways they may be completely taken up into the new centers and coordinated with them, or left empty because nervous energy is all expended in other ways. In either case, the old neural channels are still there to assume their former functions the moment the new are off guard. The old may cease, but only by becoming hopelessly enslaved and subordinated to the new, or by withering up and dying for want of exercise. The futility of it expecting a new insight to become permanent however genuine it may be, without following it up with conduct that works the new life over into neural habit is apparent on the face of it. The new must be drilled in as inevitably as was the old. The Salvation Army has caught the secret of it. They set the convert, by every means available, to the task of cultivating nervous discharges in the brain areas connected with the spiritual life. He is to make the higher life habitual. He is to get it ingrained into his very structure, pounds it in while beating a drum, he walks it in while marching, he sings it, talks it, acts it out in deeds of service, and all this so persistently that it is finally a part of himself. He has finally cast out the evil with the good. Another form of adolescent struggle which is given in the table is that due to a sense of incompleteness. It occurs in 33% of the women and 15% of the men. It is a phenomena which bears the same general interpretation as does that of the struggle with habits. It is a general and organic experience which habit is the specific. The struggle with habits is the recognition of the conflict between some bit of the old life and the new. The feeling underlying the sense of incompleteness is that life in toto is evil and sets itself in conflict with the ideals awakened at the time of conversion. It should be noticed that the struggles with habit are more common with the men, while the sense of incompleteness is more than twice as frequent among the women. This is in accordance with the sex differences which have been pointed out all the way along. The sense of incompleteness, or the struggle after an ideal, which follows conversion, is not different in kind from that which precedes conversion, nor from what we have found to belong to adolescent development among the non-conversion group. The fact of its prominence after conversion helps to demonstrate that conversion, which usually comes in early adolescence, has openly opened up the possibility of real development on the spiritual plane. Conversion is most frequently an awakening to some truth, but is a truth which is yet only perceived and has not yet been worked out over into conduct. It remains for the person to make at least a fraction of the ideal a part of himself to grow towards it. This seems to be the function of the several years of adolescent instability, to enable the youth to keep on trying in the direction of the higher life until it is made habitual. The storm and stress experiences which follow conversion are not different, in kind, from those which we have already become familiar, and need no further illustration. The point of interest for us is that they occur even more frequently, by about 10% in each of the sexes among the persons who have experience conversion than among the others. One may look for the causes underlying this difference in several directions. In the first place, it seems to be due to the fact that, as has already been pointed out, that the conversion group are persons who are more suggestible, more impressionable, and accordingly more liable to undergo mental crisis. The difference seems to be due in part likewise to the fact that, at conversion, the ideal life and the past life are brought into definite conflict. There is a sharper cleavage between the higher and lower selves. An ideal is established which is more difficult to attain because it's great incongruity with the old life. The person is suddenly expected to identify himself with the conventional ways of the churches, which are at variance with his usual habits of life. It seems natural, if these causes obtain that the conflict and friction in the adjustment of the life to the new standard should be greater in the case of the conversion type. While storm and stress is relatively more frequent after conversion than in the non-conversion group, doubts, on the other hand, are much less frequent. They occur in 38% of the women and 57% of the men. The fact that they are fewer seems to indicate that when the person has already publicly identified himself with religious matters, doubt and rejection is a more serious step. Also, that when the person is kept active in religious performance, there is not so great opportunity to stop and weigh matters of doctrine. Still, it should be observed that the percentages are large. They seem to indicate the difficulty of complete mental assimilation of religious doctrines. The young convert has usually given his assent to the theological teachings with which he is now identified in a purely emotional way, and not as the result of having weighed them intellectually. In order to make them really his own, he must pass through the process which is involved in mental assimilation of any kind. He must hold them off and perceive them and weigh them and then accept them in so far as they can fit into his own mental make-up. This is the same mental procedure, usually extending through several years, which we found to belong normally to the period of adolescence, namely that the individual must appreciate and assimilate those modes of thought and life which belong to the social whole. We have now passed into review some of the characteristic difficulties that follow conversion, and found them to be exactly the same in kind, although there are some marked differences in degree, as those which are experienced in the absence of conversion. We should notice one other marked similarity, that in both groups the spiritual difficulties are limited to about the same years. They come most frequently in the middle period of adolescence during the late teens, less frequently in the early twenties, and almost never after thirty, In only six percent of the cases do the troubles intensify after twenty-five years of age. This is further evidence which tends to set adolescence off as a distinct stage in growth, and to demonstrate that events of the particular nature we have found all along in the study of adolescence belong to this period, whether conversion occurs or not that these experiences belonged to adolescence was further borne out in this way. The number of conversions in both sexes were separated into two groups according to age. In the first group were included the females, under thirteen, and males, under fifteen. In the second group, those above these ages. This made a nearly equal number of males and females in each group. It was found that storm and stress and doubt occurred during adolescence with just about the same frequency among those who were converted early as among those whose conversion took place within the years of greater maturity. It appears that, in either event, whether conversion comes early or late, it is the beginning of a process of growth, a first insight into a life which has to be appropriated and assimilated and worked over into conduct. This much is clear to the present point, that while the events that occur in the process of spiritual readjustment in the two types of growth are identical in character, the persons who experience conversion continue to feel themselves identified with religion to a greater degree. They are less likely to become alienated from it and to look upon it objectively, as is shown in the infrequency of complete relapses and the relative fewness of skeptical doubts. Whether or not this is a wholesome tendency must be left until we come to consider the present status of the two groups. In still another respect we find that the line of growth following conversion runs exactly parallel with that pointed out in part two here likewise we find a definite period of reconstruction and reviewing the cases in the rough it appears that while nearly all have had adolescent difficulties at the time of making the records all the respondents ex- except three have arrived at a positive and constructive attitude toward life almost without exception they have left their struggles behind them although there are doubts still of certain things that other people regard as essential they give no especial anxiety. The right to question beliefs is, on the contrary, often regarded as a condition of arriving at truth. For example, one man says, I have tested my hold on truth by reason and experience. I hold every belief subject to revision. Nothing is outside the sphere of doubt and inquiry. I never consider a matter settled until its truth seems irresistible. The definite age at which reconstruction occurs does not come out so clearly here as in the former study on account of the fewness of cases. From what has been said, however, it is clear that it is here again, not later than twenty-five. It is even more marked in this class than in the former, judging by the larger percentage who have finally entered upon a positive stage, the instinct of sociality is greater in this class of persons whose life is usually conducted in close conjunction with organized institutions. The fact of having to work along with people brings with it the necessity of adapting one's own religious conceptions to those of society. One must either do this or stand aloof from one's fellows, and persons almost invariably choose the former alternative. Another influence which is strongly at work in bringing about the period of reconstruction seems to be the psychological necessity of gaining a clear mental horizon. One cannot remain in uncertainty. There is, in the cases of a distinct working of the will to believe. One person says, faith is man's comprehensive duty. We occasionally find persons in the act of trying to reconstruct their faith. A woman converted at 16 says, I am doubtful of the truth of the 39 articles. I have a growing belief in the existence of God, who is a universal father. I am trying again to believe in the divinity of Christ. In these people, then, who have passed through conversion, we have the same reconstruction process of growth illustrated that we found heretofore. This correspondence makes it appear a little more probable that it is a universal tendency in religious development that the period of adolescence should end by transition to a positive and active religious attitude. Since we have now learned that whether or not conversion has been experienced persons tend to pass through the same general line of growth, we come to the question whether or not they merge into mature life with the same general religious conceptions and attitudes. A partial answer to the question can be found by considering the beliefs, feelings, and ideals of the two groups. These three aspects of the adult religion of the conversion group were tabulated under the same headings which grew up in the study of the non conversion cases. If we compare first the feelings, we find among the conversion cases the same emotions. But with these essential differences, the feelings which represent a sense of oneness with God and Christ in the Holy Spirit are far more common, and there is apparently greater subjectivity of feeling. These persons show to a less degree the feeling of humility and dependence, but this is no evidence of the absence of a sense of kinship between themselves and God, but rather that there is not an intellectual recognition of the relationship. There is more commonly than in the other group a sense of inward joy and satisfaction such forms of expressions as these are common the spirit beareth witness with my spirit that i am a child of god we know that he abideth in us by the spirit he hath given us the most decided differences seems to be that in the conversion groups the range of feelings has become narrowed and intensified there is to a greater degree inward assurance of a satisfactory personal experience in the comparison of the beliefs of the two groups there are some likenesses and differences that stand out clearly in both the beliefs center most often around three great questions of god christ and immortality the belief in god is mentioned with about the same frequency as in the other group it is by far the most important of all the items there is this difference which the percentages do not show that the conception of god is nearly always expressed in conventional language the representation of God as mystery, as infinity, force, or life, or law, as the underlying reality of the world, conceptions which indicate that the person is in the process of gaining a first-hand appreciation of the God-idea and assimilating it, almost never occur, although these conceptions were frequent among the non-conversion group. Twice as often do they describe their beliefs in terms of the Apostles' Creed. The belief in Christ is a somewhat more vital conception among the conversion cases by as much as the ratio of 51 to 43. The belief in immortality, if one were to judge by the frequency with which it is mentioned, is not so central, the ratio being 12 to 26. It seems often not to have been mentioned, because it is so much a matter of course. This, however, does not sufficiently explain its absence. In the relative infrequency of skeptical doubts, the question seems not to have forced itself upon their notice. We saw in the previous discussion of adult beliefs that the immortality question got more and more consideration as a life problem as life advanced. It is a noteworthy fact that in the development of religions the conception of immortality has arisen later than the theistic notions. A suggestive contrast between the two groups is that the conception of religion as a life within which we found to represent the most central tendency in the growth in the non conversion group does not appear so frequently here as a matter of belief. One would anticipate from the results of the comparison of the feelings that it would figure as one of the central conceptions. It is more a feeling than a rational cognition. This is in line with what we have been ascertaining. The process of intellectual assimilation is less among the persons who have passed through the conversion experience. In accordance with their constitutional and temperamental differences, they, to a great extent, feel their way. Storm and stress, as the sequel to conversion, we found to be more frequent, while doubts were fewer. If we notice a contrast between the two groups in regard to the other things which we found to be important elements in belief, religion as centering in scientific and philosophical conceptions, religion as a process of growth, and religion as concern with conduct, we have ample evidence that this crucial difference obtains. These three types of feelings are all conspicuously absent among the conversion group. The ratio of the conception of religion as centering in scientific and philosophical conceptions in the two groups is 1 to 11, that of religion as a process of growth is 1 to 3, and that of religion as conduct is 1 to 5. The prominence of these items among the non-conversion group indicates that they are trying to reduce their world to a system and to solve their relation with it. They objectify religion sufficiently to see it in its time aspects and to appreciate it as a process of growth. They take into account a vital way their relationship to society and feel that right-doing is a test of religion. The tendency among the conversion cases, on the contrary, seems to be to feel that they possess a definite relation with God and Christ without having so large concern about the intellectual comprehension of this relation. Among the more subjectified attitude, there is a higher degree of finality and all-sufficiency in the experience. The idea of progression to an end towards which growth tends is taken less into account. They cognize their personal relationships less perfectly. Practical ethical matters appeal less to clear consciousness. This we shall find to be true also in the decision of their ideals. Nevertheless, the personal relationships are more strongly appreciated from the standpoint of intuitions. Nearly all the records of conversion experience speak of God in terms of His personal attributes. They picture Him as a loving Father who cares for His children, but less frequently than the other cases do they speak of Him as a Father or Spirit or a being who inspires awe and reverence. In short, the conversion group approach religion more from the subjective emotional standpoint, but at the sacrifice of an intellectual comprehension of it, and of a rational appreciation of relationship they sustain to the world. Even more suggestive is the comparison of the ideals of the two groups. In the consideration of the ideals, we shall assume that they represent that which is most alive in consciousness. They indicate neither that which has already been perfectly assimilated, nor that which is entirely unattained, but rather the point at which growth is most rapid. A comparison of ideals is shown in Table 32. We find the same ideals expressed, but with variations in their relative prominence. Before proceeding to a general comparison of the two groups, there are some differences between the sexes which deserve notice. In the conversion group, the men express ideals more frequently than the women in every class, with single exception of gaining knowledge. In the non-conversion group, this relation tends to be reversed. This is especially true in the altruistic class of ideals. We found in Part One that conversion was a more living experience with men. That fact may account for the contrast, if we take into consideration that the effect of conversion was to awaken consciousness vigorously in the direction of the spiritual life. In comparing the groups of ideals in the two sets of persons, the altruistic seemed to be somewhat heightened by conversion by as much as the ratio of a 100 to 95. If the ideals centering in Christ, which, as we have seen, are partly altruistic, were added, the difference would be increased to that represented by the ratio of 139 to 110. We may invoke the principle just spoken of to explain this variance likewise. One immediate effect of the conversion we found to be to arouse the social and altruistic impulses. The other marked effect of the conversion was to call forth an exalted self-consciousness in awakening to greater emotional activity. This is reflected among the ideals in the fact that the self-expression motive is far more frequent in the conversion cases. At the same time, the desire for knowledge and self-interest are somewhat greater in the non-conversion group. The greatest contrast between the two is in the regulative impulses. They are far more numerous among the non-conversion people this falls in line with the distinction pointed out in discussing the beliefs those who have passed through conversion are much less concerned with matters of conduct the conversion ideal as usually held up emphasizes complete self-mastery the giving up of self wholly to the service of god this is what we find reflected in the table in the smaller number of regulative impulses there is evidence that the old nature has been more completely eradicated the fact that self-expression, love and service of God, and the ideal as embodied in Christ's life are greater implies that there has been a more complete birth on the spiritual plane. There is a more definite giving up of self, except as represented in the self-enlargement impulses of self-perfection and self-expression, and a more complete transferring of the center of activity to an objective standard. But the case has been made too strong. We must bear in mind that the conclusion just reached grows out of one aspect of the comparison of the two groups. One condition which clearly lies back of the contrast in the ideals is that the conversion group are temperamentally different. They are more emotional, they see things more in general and abstract terms, they are controlled less by rational insight, the small number of the regulative impulses may indicate simply self-forgetfulness in the presence of stirring emotions. The relative absence of the specific virtues may be the result of less skill in self-analysis. The difference between the two groups may be most comprehensively expressed in terms of the nervous system. The condition is as if in the conversion group the association centers in the cortex, after having been awakened at conversion, were now less completely coordinated with the lower than is the case among the non-conversion cases. There is accordingly greater subjectivity and immediacy of experience. The withinness of religion is appreciated as a matter of feeling and not as an intellectual comprehension. Rational insight, which involves the coordination and association of the lower brain areas through the higher, that is to say, which implies that the spiritual life shall be interpreted in terms of sensual experience, is relatively absent. The association centres are doubtless most directly evolved out of those activities which are connected with social organization. Accordingly, we have found that the social and altruistic impulses are the ones most vitally connected with the functioning of these brain centers. In both of the groups we are studying, these impulses are important elements in religion. Helpfulness to others is equally prominent in both groups. But, on the other hand, the conversion group is awakened more on the side of abstract ideals. Love and service of God and Christ are far more common. While, on the other hand, the non-conversion group are more concerned with the specific and practical aspect of the problem, that which involves the regulation of personal conduct in accordance with social demands. That such is the normal sequence of conversion, we shall have additional evidence in the next chapter when we come to the consideration of sanctification. End of chapter twenty-eight